the strongest substances in nature. Now, the, the shell of an egg is 0.3 millimeters thick. 0.3 millimeters thick. And yet, if you turn an egg, the rounded bottom standing up, uh, we saw that the University of Maryland did a study to see how much weight could be placed on an egg. And they got up to 85 kilograms before it busted. 85 kilos. That, that's more than I weigh. That, that's, that's more than me standing on an egg. An egg can hold that. And yet, from the inside of an egg, a baby chick can crack it in a matter of moments. And here's what we're reminded of in the book of 2 Peter. The Bible is clear that external pressure will not have any impact on the church other than to strengthen us. Jesus said that the gates of hell will not prevail against us. And so we see now that everywhere in the world where the gospel is flourishing and the church is growing, they are places where persecution of the church exists. So external pressure on the egg will not crack it. External pressure on the church will not destroy it. And yet, 2 Peter says that false teaching within the church will destroy it. That the, the greatest danger to the church today is not from without, but from within. Amen? And so as we have went through 1 Peter and we're now in 2 Peter, we're pivoting from the external pressure of persecution to the internal danger of false teachers. And so in our passage this morning, as we just go verse by verse through 2 Peter, we're going to see what is at the root of false teaching. And so I want to invite you to open your Bible to 2 Peter chapter 2, beginning in verse 10. 2 Peter chapter 2, beginning in verse 10. And does someone have that in the, in the church Bible? Page 1223. So if you have a Bible on your table, page 1223. And we're going to begin in verse 10. And we're thinking about false teaching and discovering what is at the root of false teachings, all right, within the church. And so we're going to begin in verse 10. And so Peter writes, and he's writing to the church. He says, this is especially true of those who follow the corrupt desire of the flesh and despise authority. And, and we saw last week that's referring to the judgment that will come upon false teachers, all right? And then he says this in uh, the second part of verse 10. Bold and arrogant they are, not afraid to heap abuse on celestial beings. Yet even angels, although they are stronger and more powerful, do not heap abuse on such beings when bringing judgment on them from the Lord. But these people, and he means false teachers, but these people blaspheme in matters they do not understand. They are like unreasoning animals, creatures of instinct, born only to be caught and destroyed. And like animals, they too will perish. They will be paid back for harm for the harm they have done. Their idea of pleasure is to carouse in broad daylight. They are blots and blemishes reveling in their pleasures while they feast with you. With eyes full of adultery, they never stop sinning. They seduce the unstable. They are experts in greed, an accursed brood. They have left the straight way and wandered off to follow the way of Balaam, son of Bezer, who loved the wages of wickedness. But he was rebuked for his wrongdoing by a donkey, an animal without speech, who spoke with a human voice and restrained the prophet's madness. Now these people are springs without water, 
and mist driven by a storm, blackest darkness is reserved for them. For they mouth empty, boastful words, and by appealing to the lustful desires of the flesh, they entice people who are just escaping from those who live in error. They promise them freedom while they themselves are slaves of depravity. For people are slaves to whatever has mastered them. If they have escaped the corruption of the world by knowing our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and are again entangled in it and are overcome, they are worse off at the end than they were at the beginning. In fact, it would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than to have known it and to turn their backs on the sacred command that was passed on to them. Of them, the Proverbs are true. A dog returns to his vomit, and a sow that is washed returns to her wallowing in the mud. Peter doesn't hold back, does he? Let's pray, and and then uh, we'll, we'll look at this together. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is true because it comes from you, and you are the fountain of all truth. And Lord, we would be quick to say this morning and confess that apart from your Holy Spirit, we cannot understand your word. So Holy Spirit, we pray that you would open our minds and give us understanding of your word. We pray that you would soften our hearts, Holy Spirit, that we would be transformed by your word. We pray that you would speak to us, your people, for your glory and for our good, we humbly ask in Jesus' name. There are two uh, key words that we've seen uh, in 2 Peter, and I want us just to, to be reminded of, uh, of what they are. Uh, first, we, we see the word false is used throughout, throughout this letter. And just as a reminder, in the original Greek, the, the word false here means untrue, deceitful, and wicked. And it's important to point out because it, it doesn't mean to simply make a mistake, Right? And so we used the example last time, if, if someone were to just say, hey, Kenny, how far is it from, um, from Birmingham to Glasgow? How many miles is it? Don't look that on your phone right now, right? Uh, I, I might say um, it's 160 miles, right? Maybe. Now, if you went and checked it out and, and it came back and you, and you found out it was 172, hopefully you wouldn't say Kenny is an untrue, deceitful, wicked person because he was 12 miles off, Right. I, I, I wasn't trying to mislead you. I was just trying to give you the best information I have. I wasn't purposefully trying to lead you to untruth. Okay, this false teaching, the word false here means when you deliberately set out to lead someone in the wrong way, right? It's like if you said, Kenny, what is two plus two? And I said five, knowing it was four, seeking to mislead you, right? So uh, false teaching here is about the intentionality right? It's not simply being accidentally mistaken. No, no, no. This is setting out to deceive someone, all right? That's the word false, and so we'll see that through the scripture. The other word we saw here in this book that we want to be reminded of is the word heresy, the word heresy. And the word heresy is really interesting in the Greek. This would have originally been written in the Greek, and it's really interesting because it actually means to take for oneself. The word heresy really has nothing to do with teaching. It, it actually has to do with the motivation of the teacher. And what it means is to take for oneself. It's the idea that, that the person who is teaching is only interested in how they can benefit from what they're teaching, how they can personally benefit from what they're doing. Are you with me? And so it speaks to the motivation of the teacher. 
right? So what the teacher is doing, he is intentionally leading people to untruth. And what is the motivation of his heart? The motivation of his heart is to gain something for himself. And those are going to speak to these roots. And so beginning here in verse 10 through 22, we're simply going to see four roots of false teaching. And, uh, and we'll just look at these together. Uh, number one, we see this, that in the church, false teachings are rooted in pride. That, that false teachings are rooted in pride. And, and by the way, the root and the fruit are directly related. Is that true? And so when, when you look at uh, an, an apple tree, right, good roots will produce good fruit. Bad roots will produce bad fruit, right? And so what we see in the false teacher, we, the, the, the false uh, fruit, the bad fruit can easily be cited, but we have to first look at the bad roots. And so Peter here says that in the church, false teachings first and foremost will be rooted in pride. Notice what he said there in verse 10. He said, bold and arrogant, they are not afraid to heap abuse on celestial beings. And he compares false teachers to angels. And he says that actually these false teachers are more bold and arrogant than an angel would ever think about being. And and he's saying this. He's saying if an angel who has never sinned who lives in close proximity to God in heaven, if that angel is not willing to be bold and arrogant about things, then how much more should a fallen sinful man or woman not be willing to be bold and arrogant? And so he says, bold and arrogant, they are not afraid to heap abuse on celestial beings. Uh, These are rich words in in the original language. It means presumptuous and self-pleasing presumptuous and self-pleasing. Someone was recently telling me about uh, a pastor in the States, a well-known pastor who is is basically mandated to his congregation that whenever he walks into the room, his whole congregation is to stand up in honor of him. We will not be instituting that at Oikos Church. Amen, Dan? We love you, but we're not going to do that, right? And, and, and so, uh, so th- this guy basically has told his church, whenever I enter the room, you are to stand up in recognition of who I am. Wow. Knowing his teaching, presumptuous and self-pleasing, it would be. Who, who are we? Who, who are these men and women, these false teachers in the church that somehow they might think that they would be exalted and lifted up above anyone else? Uh, this was many, many, many years ago when I was ordained in, into ministry. I, I was probably 20, Christy, maybe 20 years old, and, and, um, and there were a group of godly, godly men. We had a worship service and an ordination service, and, and uh, there was this point in time where these men, many of them in the latter end of their ministry, uh, laid hands on me and prayed over me. I'll never, ever forget when one of them said, and he whispered it in my ear, So he didn't say it to the whole church, but he was praying for me, and he whispers in my ear, and he says, young man, never forget that you are nothing more than one beggar telling another beggar where to find a loaf of bread. You are nothing more than one beggar telling another beggar where to find a loaf of bread. Jesus is the bread of life, amen? And and I am no more, listen, and, and I believe this with all my heart, I am no more valued before God, and I'm no more special than the heroin addict in City Center, Birmingham. I'm no more loved by God than the prostitute in Hansworth. For the, the, the level is the ground at the foot of the cross. Amen? 
Level is the ground at the foot of the cross. For all of us are made in the image of God, and none are righteous, no, not one. Dare I ever believe that anyone should stand up when I enter a room? And what a stark contrast to the Lord Jesus, who on the night as he broke bread with his disciples, washed their feet. Didn't ask for anyone to stand, but instead he knelt down and washed the feet of his disciples. Such is the king of glory, amen? And, and so uh, oftentimes we will find that the root of false teaching of false teachers is, is this idea of, of presumptuousness and self-pleasing, to be recognized, to, to be known, right? To be known. Listen, we're not called to be known. We're called to make Jesus known, amen? Like, we're called to lift him up. We're called to take him to the nations, right? To make disciples. And so we're not here to be lifted up. We're here to lift up the Lord Jesus. And so he says, in the church, false teachings are rooted in pride. But then secondly, we see this in the text. He says, in the church, False teachings are rooted in ignorance. False teachings are rooted in ignorance. And he says this in uh, in verse 12. He says, but these people blaspheme in matters they do not understand. They are like unreasoning animals, creatures of instinct, born only to be caught and destroyed. Like animals, they too will perish. Like animals, they too will perish. He says that, that these false teachers are ignorant of the truth of God's Word. They, they, they don't understand it. They don't know it. They're, they're ignorant of it. And in fact, when we get to chapter 3, uh, he, he'll give a specific example. He says, these false teachers are willfully blind to what the Bible teaches. And, and when we get to chapter 3, verse 5, we'll see the example he uses is creation and the flood. Creation and the flood. And he says, they have willfully chosen to deny the, the supernatural sovereign creation of Genesis 1-11, through and they've chosen to deny the flood, God's judgment of sin. He says they know it, they've read it, they're familiar with it, and they've chose to deny it. So don't miss this. Ignorance here is not simply a lack of understanding. It's not wanting to know. It's not wanting to know. Like, I don't, I don't want to know what God says. And if that's what God says, I want him to say something else. I want it to be something else. Um, uh, and, and I'm going to give you some examples. And in, in no way, please don't take this as, as, as picking on anyone, but these, these are just real examples in the world in which we live. And so Stephen Cottrell is the Archbishop of York. Uh, there are about 80 million Anglicans in the world, and he's number two. You've got the Archbishop of Canterbury and then the Archbishop of York. He's the second most powerful man in the Anglican church that goes the world wide. And recently he was interviewed on the BBC and they asked him about sexuality and about human sexuality, about all of these things. And this is what he said, and I'm quoting now from him from the BBC, and this is what he said. You can watch it online. He says, I'm not sure that the church has ever before had to face the challenge of being seen as immoral by the culture in which it is set. Now, that's his starting point. His starting point is not that the church has has moral authority over the culture. He's saying that the culture has moral authority over the church. So we've already taken things and flipped them upside down. Do you understand? And so he's, he's saying we don't have the moral authority to speak to a culture and say right is right and wrong is wrong. He's saying, no, we are to receive that information from the culture. Can I just say that is a deadly, deadly place to be, right? 
And so then he goes on to say this. He says, regarding the Bible and what the Bible says about human sexuality, quote, what we can do is recognize that what we know now about human development and human sexuality requires us to look again at those biblical texts to see what they are actually saying to our situation. For what we know now is not what was known by the authors then. Did you, did you hear that? We need to look again at the biblical text to see what it actually says about sexuality. For what we know now is not what they knew then when they wrote the Bible. So we are now uh, superior intellectually. We are superior in technology. We know better, and therefore I know what it says, but I will willfully be ignorant of the truth. And that's how you end up with a culture that's flipped upside down. Right? And so he says at the root of false teaching, at the root, he says there's, there's pride, this idea of, of I want to be acknowledged, I want to be exalted. But then he says, secondly, there's this idea of being willfully ignorant, not wanting to know. Uh, I, I can remember years ago when I was a pastor in the States and, and uh, we went to visit with a family and, and, and we were going through a difficult time with them. And, and I'll never forget, the, the woman looked at me and, and I said, well, you know, the word says, she said, the word, the word, the word, I'm sick and tired of hearing you talk about the word. Here's the reality, church. Without the word, we have nothing. In fact, can I say, if it, if it wasn't for this book, I'd probably be playing golf this morning. But this book changes everything, amen? Uh, look at the person beside you and, and just tell them we can trust the Bible. Look at them and tell them. Go ahead. I know it's weird. You're English, but it's weird. Do you believe it? I believe it. I believe it. And by the way, can I just say that I, I would rather believe all of it and get to heaven and find out I didn't have to than not believe all of it and get to heaven and find out I should have. And then find out maybe I didn't make it to heaven. Are you with me? We, we can trust the book. Why? Because it was written by a holy, perfect God who loves us. And by the way, if God's not big enough to write a book, he's not a very big God. Right? And so at the heart of false teaching, we see pride, we see woeful, willing ignorance. I just don't want to know what it says. I would rather go with the culture. Uh, we, we see a third thing, and it's this, that, that in the church, uh, false teachings are rooted in lust and greed. And in the church, false teaching is rooted in lust and greed. And so look what he says there in verses 13 and 14. He says, their idea of pleasure is to carouse in broad daylight. The point there is they don't try to hide it, right? By the way, that's the world we live in now, right? There, there, you know, there, are things, there are things people used to say and do that they would have been ashamed of. And now we're proud of. We do it in broad daylight. And so he says, their idea of pleasure is to carouse in broad daylight. They are blots and blemishes reveling in their pleasures while they feast with you. With eyes full of adultery, they never stop sinning. They seduce the unstable. They are experts in greed. And then it's like Peter just can't take it anymore. And he just puts an accursed brood. I don't even know what a brood is, but it's a good Bible word. Amen. An accursed brood, right? It's like Peter just, he's like, they are experts in greed. And again, he says, this would be a root and this would be a fruit. And I think for us in the church today, 
particularly in the West, this, this is a fruit we need to be mindful of. Yeah? And so if, if there's a fruit of greed, if there's a, a fruit of lust, then, then I need to step back, and you can't separate the teaching from the fruit. Does that make sense? Someone might say, yeah, I know that, I know that, I know that, but, but man, he's just a really good speaker. Well, I, I know that, but she's a really good communicator. No, we can't do that. We can't separate the fruit from the root, right? And so he says here, we, we have to look at this motivation of lust and greed. Again, not picking on anyone, um, but, but just to give you some examples. So there, there's a great Instagram channel called Preachers and Sneakers, right? That's the name of it, Preachers and Sneakers. And, uh, and so, this was started by a guy in Texas, of course, and, uh, and Preachers and Sneakers is, what he does is, um, he's really into fashion, and so the way it started out was, he just watches different preachers on television each week, and then he'll, he'll just take a snapshot of them, and then he'll go online and try to buy the clothes that they're wearing. It's called Preachers and Sneakers. And so he shows you what they're wearing and how much it costs. Let me give you some examples recently. Stephen Furtick at Elevation Church in our home in North Carolina, they run about 29,000 people on a Sunday. Imagine that. We're packed in here with about 70. Can you imagine 29,000 people on a Sunday? And recently, on Sunday morning, he was wearing a pair of St. Laurent boots that cost, and I checked it this morning online, I was going to buy Dan up here, um, but they are $1,050. $1,050 for a pair of shoes. Can I say I proudly got these Pumas at Sports Direct for 32 pounds. You two can have them. $1,050 for a pair of shoes. T.D. Jakes who you may well know, uh, recently was seen out wearing a Christian Le Baton bum bag around his waist, uh, $1,200. $1,200 for a bum bag. Uh, Joel Osteen's second home that he just purchased outside of Houston, Texas is 17,000 square feet. He paid $10.5 million. $10.5 million, and that's his second home. And by the way, I went and looked. It's only six bedrooms. Only six bedrooms. Must be big bedrooms, amen? Uh, Joyce Meyer, her weekly income, and this isn't to her ministry, this is her salary. This is what she lives off of. Joyce Meyer's weekly income is $26,000. $26,410. Let me put that in pounds for you. Joyce Meyer's every week, makes 21,219 pounds every week, every week. This is based on the money, the information they submit to the U.S. Tax Bureau. So an average annual salary last year in the United Kingdom, we checked it this morning, Christy, true? Checked it this morning, average annual salary in the U.K. last year was 33,000 pounds. That means in 10 days, Joyce Meyer will make what an average person makes here in one year. Her ministry last year brought in $112 million, and 8% was given to charity. It brought in $112 million, and only 8% was used for charitable purposes. The rest was kept. He says they are experts in greed. Now, can I just say, 
regardless of, 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 of what you think of the teaching, can I just tell you, when you have pastors who wear boots that cost $1,000, when you have pastors who wear bum bags that cost $1,200, when you have pastors who live in homes that cost $10.5 million, when you have women who preach and make more in 10 days than most people make in a year, can I just say, that is what an unbelieving world finds unbelievable. That is what an unbelieving world finds unbelievable. It is hard to talk about what it means to be a Christian and explain this to an unbeliever. When Matthew 8.20, Jesus says, if you want to be my disciple, know this, that the birds of the air have nests and foxes have dens, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Let me say that again. They come to Jesus and say, a man comes to Jesus in Matthew chapter 8 and says, I want to be your disciple. Jesus says, all right, you want to follow me? He says, yeah, I want to follow you. And Jesus says, all right, then know this. A bird has a place to live. A fox has a place to live. But the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. And when Jesus sends the disciples out two by two, what does he send them out with? Nothing. I just can't picture the Jesus of the Bible wearing $1,000 boots. I, I just can't picture the Jesus of the Bible buying a house for $10 million. Here's what we're getting at. And, and I know this can be hard to swallow for all of us, but it's true. He says, at the root is lust and greed. And we can't separate it. doesn't matter how big the church is. doesn't matter how great the speaker is. can't separate the fruit from the root. Uh, lastly, we see this. In the church, false teachings are based on pride. They're woeful ignorance. We see lust and greed. But then lastly, guys, we see this. In the church, false teachings are rooted in lostness. In the church, false teaching is rooted in lostness. Look what he says in verse 17. He says this in verse 17. He says, these people are springs without water. They're mist driven by a storm. And the blackest darkness is reserved for them. The blackest darkness is reserved for them. Now, there, there are many metaphors for hell in the Bible. There are many different metaphors that Jesus uses to describe this place of eternal judgment. And one of them is outer darkness. It's, it's, one, of the, it's one of the descriptions of hell. He says it's, it's a place of weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth, and it's a place of outer darkness. And this is the exact same Greek language here that Peter is using. And so when he says, blackest darkness is reserved for them, don't miss this, hard to hear, but he says, for these false teachers, their reservation in hell is guaranteed. And what we see in the text is, their goal is in edifying themselves to take as many with them as they carouse in the daylight. And they use others as a means of gain for themselves. But Peter, in speaking comfort to the church, says, it's comfort and warning. Yeah, it's comfort and warning. Peter says, know this, that for them, the blackest darkness is reserved for them. James will talk about the tongue. James will say, how do you get, you know, how do you get good water out of a bad well? How do you get bad water out of a good well? 
And, and we see something similar here. He says they're, they're springs without water. They're, they're misdriven by the storm. In other words, uh, listen, if, if, if they were good, if they were godly, then, then this stuff wouldn't be part of what they say and what they do. So you can't separate character from content. So whether it's your, your favorite preacher on TV, on the computer, whatever it is you do, uh, whether it's coming here on a Sunday morning, know this, you can never separate content from character, right? And so it's interesting here in these four verses, these four points, that it seems to be more in this example about their character and their content flows out of their character. So for example, if, if my character is greed, I want money. And so if I want money, I'm going to preach things to make people happy to get them to give. Because if I make them sad about themselves, they won't give. And then I'll be sad about me because I'll have to wear trainers from Sports Direct and not these I was going to buy you, Dan, these $1,000 boots. Are you with me? And so character always impacts content. So what do we do then? What do we do as the church? Because it is the greatest danger in the West today. It is the absolute greatest danger. The greatest threat of the church is not, is not China, it's not North Korea, it's not militant Islam. The greatest threat to the church is the things we talk about and teach you. So what do you and I do? And remember, we've, we've, we've said a couple of times now that, that whether it's MI5 or the FBI, that, that when they go to study counterfeit money and when new agents are being taught how to identify counterfeit bills. What they do for over a year, up to 18 months, all they do is study genuine money. All they do is study the real thing. And the idea is this. If you can spot a real five-pound note in your sleep, you know it backwards and forwards. You know every millimeter of a five-pound note. You've spent so much time with the real thing that when the false one comes along, you can spot it in an instant. Watch this. You don't, you don't study what's false to learn what's true. You study what's true to learn what's false. Amen? And so uh, I just want to remind us of this every time we do this to Peter together, and it's this. How do I spot false teaching? I spot it by knowing the truth. How do I spot counterfeit money? I spot counterfeit money because I know what a real five-pound note feels like, what it smells like, what it looks like. And so I can spot the false truth. And so Paul writes this to young Timothy. And uh, it's interesting. Timothy is a pastor. We, we don't know how old Timothy was. Probably somewhere between 16 and 18. Just like my son Max pastoring a church, right? And so you have, you have Timothy who's pastoring the church in Ephesus. And he's struggling with false teachers in his church. And so we have three letters that are written to Timothy. One is the book of Ephesians. Then we have 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy. And so Paul is pouring into Timothy on how to spot false teachers. And this is what he tells Timothy. He says, never forget that all Scripture is inspired by God and is useful to teach us what is true and to make us realize what is wrong in our lives. It corrects us when we are wrong and teaches us to do what is right. God uses it to prepare and equip his people to do every good work. That's what the Bible says about itself, that this book, yeah, this book was inspired by God. The Greek is theonoustos. It means he breathed it out. It, it literally just came out of him. This book was breathed out by God, and it is useful to teach us what is true, to make us realize what is wrong in our lives. It corrects us, it teaches us, it equips us, and it prepares us. And so what do we need to spot false teaching? As disciples of Jesus, 
who know and love him. We are filled with the Holy Spirit. Jesus said that the Holy Spirit will lead us into truth. The Spirit wrote the book, and the Spirit helps us to interpret the book. Here's the reality. Through the Holy Spirit and the Bible and the local church, we have all we need to know truth. Amen? Look at the person beside you and tell them you can trust the book. Look at them. Well, say Bible, because they may not know what book you mean, right? We entrust it. We entrust it. Now listen, do I understand everything in here? Absolutely not. Do I like everything in here? Absolutely not. Right? There's some things in here that I'm like, oh Lord, I don't feel like being generous. Right? Lord, Lord, I don't, I don't, I don't feel like blessing those who curse me. Yeah? There's some things in here that are hard. But you know what? We know they're for His glory and always for our good. Amen? We can trust the book. What's the first step then? The first step is knowing that you're a disciple of Jesus Christ. It's knowing that there's been a day in your life that you've, you've willfully chosen to ask Jesus to forgive you of your sins, to come into your life, to change you, and you've said, Lord Jesus, I want to follow you. And, and you've taken that initial step. that You said, Jesus, listen, I, there's nothing good in me And thank you for dying on the cross for me, for shedding your blood for me. And will you come into my life? Will you forgive me of my sins? And I give my life to follow you. That's step one. The Bible says that if you've done that, you've been filled with the Holy Spirit of God. And so now what do we do? We abide in the word. As we abide in the word and serve one another in the local church, we have all we need. Know the truth. Know the Savior who gave it. To love and serve him in those. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we love you, we praise you, and we thank you for your word. And God, I, I genuinely mean, like, Lord, I, we don't always like understand everything in this book, and there are things in here that are hard and that challenge us. Lord, we know that it's always for our good. Not just for our good, Lord, it's for the good of the culture. And, and Lord, as we look at the culture and the conflict with this word, we can no more apologize for what this book says than a doctor can apologize for a cure to a disease. We can no more apologize for what this book says, Lord, than a doctor can apologize for a cure to a disease. In this book, we have the cure to hell, death, sin, and the grave. When that bumps up against what this world tells us, Lord, grant us faith to believe the book. Grant us faith to love you and to follow you. And Lord, I pray that if if there is one here today who's never taken that very first step of, of following you, Jesus, your word says that today is the day of salvation. I pray before they leave that they would speak to me or to Dan that, that Lord, they too could know you as Lord and Savior. And Lord, for those of us who have done that, would you, would you help us to walk by faith? Would you help us to, to, to recommit to knowing your word to believing it, to following it, for your glory, for our good we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together and let's worship.